Blog Talk Radio. today. Good love. Is your relationship everything you want it to be? Are you living a fulfilled, passionate life empowered with choices that ignite you to the next level? Good love makes your whole life better. So join America's good love doctor, Dr. Brenda Wade, on a journey to your healthiest life yet. A regular on Dr. Oz and Dr. Drew, she's appeared on Oprah, Good Morning America, and is featured in countless publications from USA Today to Essence Magazine. The creator of life-changing Get Unstuck Now, Love, Money, and Save a Seminars, she's counseled millions, but today she's here just for you with the hottest topics, guests, and trends. This is Good Love with Dr. Brenda Wade. Oh, hello, everyone, and welcome to Good Love. So glad to have you with us tonight. I'm your good love doctor, Dr. Brenda Wade, and we are tackling a huge, huge subject tonight, one that touches one in four Americans. This is so powerful. So I want you to be sure that you are with us for the entire hour as we talk with the founders of an innovative program that's going to shed some new light on the topic of addictive illness, on the topic of how to recover from addictive illness. And because, as I said a moment ago, one in four Americans are directly dealing with the consequences of alcoholism and addiction in their family, or it could be somebody that you work with. It could be a friend. This touches everybody. You know somebody who is dealing with addictive illness. Those are the chances. Those are the odds. And it's true for most of us. And we don't know very much about addiction. We think we know about addiction. Did you know that there are about 12 different addictions? Some people say there are more than that. But that includes sex, money, food, alcohol, gambling, marijuana, rage, hey, shopping. All right, those are just some of them. And remember that this week and every week, the key to good love is knowing that you are truly worthy and deserving of good love. And it doesn't matter where you are on your journey. You could be getting ready for recovery or in recovery or helping somebody else get an intervention or recover from their addictive illness, wherever you are, I want you to say this. This is our own mantra here on Good Love Radio. I am worthy. Breathe that in. I am worthy. And I am deserving. 
yes, I am deserving. Say that to yourself. And I am so lovable. I am so lovable. I am worthy. I am deserving. And I am so lovable. And that is the truth for all of us. And we need to remember that, that every challenge in life is an opportunity to grow, to expand, to become more of our true self. So take a breath right now. We're going to focus on why good love is essential to your greatness. How to identify negative love patterns that could be blocking you from true intimacy, and that can include the patterns of addictive illness, how you can break the chains of what happens then so that you are free to experience what is happening right now. Now, to join the conversation tonight with your questions or your comments, we love to hear from you. The number is 347 979 and you can push one on your phone to participate in the discussion or send us a message via Facebook or tweet us at Dr. Brenda Wade. So you hit us back on Facebook at Dr. Brenda Wade or tweet us at Dr. Brenda Wade. Now, one of the things I know from my own work, because every day in our classes and seminars and private work, uh, private coaching and therapy, I am working with people who are affected by their own or somebody else's addiction. And I am shocked how poorly understood this topic is, whether people are struggling with substances such as alcohol or drugs or food. There are so many behaviors that create an inability for people to follow through with day-to-day responsibilities, functions, relationships. And today we're going to talk about the Heart of Addiction and How to Recover with the founders of a groundbreaking program called 12 Steps Further. And you can see more about them, learn more about them at www.12stepsfurther, that's F-U-R-T-H-E-R.com. But let me introduce you to these wonderful people right now. We have Karen Epps, who has 25 years of recovery and deep spiritual practice. Her work centers on taking recovery beyond just staying sober. She offers great new insights on how the 12 steps, when seriously taken for recovery and, get this everybody, spiritual growth, improve the quality of our lives. Karen's an ordained minister, a retreat facilitator, speaker, and a workshop presenter. We also have with us tonight Skip Sams, and Skip has come to understand the 12 steps on a very profound level after giving up and recovering from crystal meth and having a dual diagnosis of bipolar disorder with HIV since 2004. Now that is a fully loaded set of challenges, and he's overcome these challenges to teach us about his journey, and he's done everything from composing, singing, acting, producing. He's a visual artist. He's scored several films, and he's currently an inspirational speaker. I'm going to tell you a lot more about them as we go along, but let's welcome to Good Love Radio, Karen Epps and Skip Sams. Good evening. 
Good evening, Karen. Good evening, Skip. Hello. Yay. Hey, Brenda. Great to be with you this evening. Thank you for giving us the opportunity and the honor of being with you on your show tonight. Well, it's our honor to be with the two of you. You both have incredible stories. Why don't you start by telling us more about your journey with addiction so that we can follow with you how you started on the road to the addiction. And then, of course, we all want to know how you came out, what we need to know about this. So who'd like to go first? Go ahead, Karen. All right. Terrific. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, um, I actually have had another anniversary since I sent that information to you. So I'm actually now 26 years in sober. Wow. Um, congratulations I... <laughs> and happy anniversary. That is quite an accomplishment. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It means so much to me. It really does. Um, I was just speaking on Sunday. As you know, um, this is Holy Week. We start with Palm Sunday, and, and then, of course, we have Easter coming up on um, this coming Sunday on the 20th. But I was talking about how Holy Week is a uh, – the story of Holy Week is also a story of transformation. It's a story of going into darkness and then coming through the uh, crucifixion experience and going – into the place of deep, you know, transformation and then coming out resurrected. And I so identify with that story because of the um, road that I've been on in my life of coming from that place of being hopeless and helpless, finding a path of recovery, which was, you know, through 12 steps. And now this 26 years later, to be living such a rich and rewarding life. And, and I just truly know that uh, my life wouldn't be what it is if it hadn't have been for that point in time hitting bottom. And so, you know, just to step back on that a little bit, I um, actually started drinking. Um, I take my first drink to the age of 12. And um, what years I know old? Oh, my goodness. Yes. That's yeah, amazing. That's- How did that come about? You know, Brenda, um, for many people, I think, who can, are listening and can identify with this, there's this discontent. We, we say in 12 Step, we talk about being restless, irritable, and discontent, and there's something going on in our lives, even in our child, you know, as young as childhood, that we're not comfortable in our skin, we're not comfortable where we live, we're just not comfortable even perhaps around people and are trying to find a way to escape. And it just happened for me that um, this boy that I was infatuated with came along with a bottle of vodka. And, I, you know, I don't remember a whole lot about him, but I remember the Smirnoff. You know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow, that's intense. So part of you somehow wanted to join or impress or be with this boy with the, the Smirnoff. And so you took your first drink. What happened after that? took the first drink and what it was it was magic for me because it took the edge and I know you might be sitting there going my god you're only 12 years old how could there be an edge and yet there was there was this edge and what the what Smirnoff did is it took the edge away and I felt that sense of, of peace I felt that sense of ease and I felt that alcohol hit my stomach and it was like it exploded and everything went um, alive in a way from there and I spent the next 16 years trying to recapture that feeling 
You know, I hear that a lot from addicts that the addiction itself isn't the wonderful high every time. It's the chasing the first experience of addiction. Yep, that's exactly it. It's chasing the first experience where I felt so remarkably at peace and at ease. And then, of course, over time, as our tolerance builds up, you know, we don't, we're just never able to get back, and that's what we're chasing is that elusiveness. And then, of course, underneath that, what is it that we're trying to do? We're trying to fill a hole that's within us at a very, at a psychic level, at a soul level. And when I say psychic, I mean I'm talking at the level of the psychic level of the soul. It's a spiritual illness. I mean, Carl Jung um, said famously mm-hmm. you know, in his work that he felt that it was a misdirected or a misguided attempt that alcoholics, and he was speaking specifically about alcoholism at the time, but that it was a misguided attempt to try and connect with spirit by going through the spirits, which is alcohol, you know, is a spirit. That's interesting. That's interesting. Now, we're going to come back to that because I know that the spiritual aspect of this is very important in your work today. But Skip, how did you get started? And I understand it was crystal meth for you, not alcohol, that you started with. Is that true? Actually, crystal meth is what brought me to my knees. But Mm -hmm. before that, there was a process And, you know, what Karen said, that whole, is very, very true for me. I grew up in um, a preacher's home and uh, a very loving home. Um, But uh, I learned very young, started to realize very young that I'm gay. And I grew up about the time that there was this lady on TV, the orange juice lady, known as Anita Bryant, oh, God, who, yes. was, who was on TV preaching that God hates fags. And we heard that over and over. And I took that very, I didn't know what that meant, you know. And I never heard my parents talk like that. I never heard anything like that. But I still heard that at 11 years old. And it... I grew up singing in church, loving to sing for God, loving to just serve and learning to serve at a very young age. But then when I heard that, that God does not love me, it ripped out that hole that Karen was talking about. It just ripped my heart out and just left this emptiness. So at 11, 12 years old, I started acting out sexually and I started acting out sexually with men and my first um, my and that continued for years and by the time I was 16 17 years old my first addiction was sex that Mm -hmm. self-hate of my body and just abusing allowing my body to be abused over and over again you know, in, in puberty, we have enough going on. Oh, God, then, don't we? Yes. <laughs> and, and then to put that layer on top of it, you know, I, I just had that hole. And allowing myself to be abused like that, I hated my body. I hated myself. Then it went into food addiction um, and uh, anorexia. And then when I was 19, somebody introduced me to cocaine in Long Island on the same night. 
then that was on <laughs> and that went on that went on for years and then i found crystal meth crystal meth was i thought my cure mm-hmm. because this this whole time um you know i have a mental illness that uh was it was uh diagnosed as depression but there was this mania that was never really being diagnosed. So crystal meth for me seemed like a balance to my mm-hmm. uh, mental state. Mm-hmm. But I also stopped drinking and I stopped uh, uh, doing cocaine. I thought it, I thought it cured my alcoholism, actually. <laughs> wow, so I, crystal meth was a cure for alcoholism. You that's poor what, thing. You know, oh my god. That, that's uh you know, that's how that's how the addictive brain works. Right. Exactly. Yeah, what's best known is thinking thinking, right? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So one aside and pick up another and that took care of the that took care of that problem. <laughs> right. So at uh thirty nine years old I was uh living in Chicago. One morning I came to and uh, I just had the thought, just go end it, just be done, go throw yourself in front of the L tracks. And it was a very serious thought. I was preparing to do it, and I thought, you know, you've just messed up half your life. The last 20 years, you have thrown away every opportunity that has come to you, and now you're going to be 40 years old, and your life is over. And there was something in doing that math that I, and I know today this is my higher power. I know today it's called the gift of desperation. But I thought, you know, if you've messed up the last 20 years and you're 40 years old, what if you do something the next 20 years? It's all that the gift of desperation. Is that what I heard? That's amazing. Yes, the gift of desperation. There has to be that moment where we're so desperate, mm-hmm. and it's it's the rock bottom. We're mm-hmm. so desperate that the only solution there is is that spiritual solution. I had gone into 12-step meetings for years knowing I had a problem, but I heard the word God, and I thought, I'm out of here. Right. I know God. God hated God- you. God's people hate me and I hate them right back. That was, and I didn't understand what these drunken derelicts were going to have anything to teach me about God. So, wow. So there was, there was that math and it was like, you know, if you do something the next 20 years, then then you'll have a great life and you can live, you know, 60 is not that old anymore. <laughs> yeah, and then you could live sixty to eighty and have a great retirement. And that's when I when I made the call and I asked for help. So who did you call? Who did you call? I called uh, my former partner. Um, we were separated at the time. Um, I had been. I thought my family had alienated me at this time. I realized today I had abandoned them much um, long before they had, you know, long before that. But my former partner um, was keeping tabs on me, and I called him and said, I'm ready. I am ready. 
So he knew and, you were an you're an addict at that point. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He had been. Um, I had been trying to get clean uh, through a city program in Chicago uh, for gay men who are on crystal meth because it's an epidemic, and the city was trying to do something, and they were trying to do it um, not through the twelve steps, and they couldn't. Um, um, harm reduction is what they called it. And I couldn't. Um, my uh, livelihood was tied up in uh, my using at that point a little bit. So every time I needed some money, I would go get some drugs and try to sell them, thinking I wasn't going to use them. But uh, it didn't turn out that way. Boy, that's a handy livelihood if you're an addict, isn't it? Yes. Bless your heart. Well, that is so often the case people who are working with the thing that they're addicted to, you know, whatever it is. So you had quite a journey from first sexual acting out and sex addiction, then to the out. Well, you said food was next, actually, because anorexia is a kind of food addiction. Then Mm -hmm. to alcohol, then to crystal meth and cocaine. Wow. So one phone call, one phone call out of desperation, and you started down the path. Now, let me circle back to you, Karen. How did you really come to that point of, okay, I've got to do something? What changed for you? Well, you know, I um, had embarked upon a career. um, Early in my career, I had a daughter at that point in time. I had gotten married to a person who I now know was an untreated Al-Anon and um, really just was completely codependent to what was going on with me. And I was a bar drinker. Now, for those who don't know, describe what a complete Al-Anon codependent is. (laughs) Well, an Al-Anon is a person, oftentimes is a person who doesn't drink or doesn't necessarily use drugs, but is emotionally codependent to the person who is using and gets swept up in the drama of what's going on with the alcoholic and oftentimes is trying to rescue them or the addict, okay? So I I tend to frame alcohol because that's the foundation of my recovery, but I was also an addict. Um, So really somebody who is in a um, co-dependent relationship with someone particularly who's using, their their whole thing is how can I save the alcoholic? And that's what they gear themselves around. And I met this man who um, was attractive and, you know, we fell in love, got pregnant and got married. You know, and then he spent the next short period of time that we were together, you know, three years, he spent that time trying to somehow or another control my drinking. He would come find me at the bars or, you know, he would call the places where he knew I hung out and in the background you'd hear me saying, tell him I'm not here, you know, um, those kinds of things. I remember coming coming home once um, I walked in the door, it was like, oh, I don't know, maybe five or six in the morning, and I'd been out, and I'd do the kinds of things that, you know, alcoholic women do. I have a friend who put it this way. She said, when I start drinking, I forget that I was married. And so I would forget that I was married. And um, I came home one time about five or six in the morning, and the door wouldn't quite open, and it was because my husband had fallen asleep by the door with the phone next to him, because this was before cell phone days, you know. Um, And so this was like just the kind of insanity that was going on in our relationship and in my life. I, you know, worked for a couple that had their own company and they loved me like second parents and they also, you know, they really tolerated the kinds of things that many 
traditional employers wouldn't tolerate, you know, the calling in sick and the showing up late and, you know, being um, hung over and you know, just all of those kinds of things. And I will say that for the duration of my pregnancy, I managed to stay sober for that period of time. And I, you know, that was the grace of God, absolutely, that I stayed sober while I was actually pregnant shortly thereafter. I, you know, yeah, thank with- God for that, right? Yeah, thank God for that. You, know. you had calls all around you. The people you worked for were making it possible for you to continue drinking, probably because they thought they were helping. Your husband loved you and made it possible for you to continue drinking because he loved you. And this is a case for those who aren't familiar with codependence and, and Al-Anon. This is always part of an addictive picture because we're talking about love relationships so often loving someone who's an addict includes i'll put up with the addictive behavior i'll put up with you forgetting you're married i'll put up with you coming late to work and being hungover and it's one of the things in a good love relationship we'll talk about in the second half of the show which is the idea of boundaries you know, where you end up to begin because that's crucial because it sounds like your partner also, Skip, had been caught in that and it sounds like maybe he was able to step back until you called for help. Yes, he was. Um, he, he, um, he stepped back. We separated, although our kind of uh, separation was uh, we didn't uh, – totally separate like I left the building I moved like three floors down and he moved like a few floors up but uh, but no he he was able to um, separate we he checked in on me like once a week Um, when I became uh, HIV positive he stepped up to the plate Um, I became very ill and I serial converted and you know he brought me home uh, took care of me got me set up with doctors, um, then was able to, again, step back and said, you know, this is your responsibility. Um, And the whole time when uh, he saw what was happening to me, he, he was constantly saying, you know, there is a place, there are places where you can go um, where they can take care of your rent, they can take care of your bills, they can take care of maintaining your life because I was so unmanageable at the point. And, mm-hmm. um, but all you have to do is concentrate on getting better. And oh. it, took, it took a long time for me to accept that I was in that position um, but Except he was you were ill and an addict. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. both of you had people in your lives that loved you who were doing that self-sacrificing that co's can do, but also genuinely, it seems in the case of your former partner, there's an attempt to get you to get help. So what what did it? You said you finally, out of desperation, said, okay, I've got to do something here. I've got to change this. I've got to make that phone call. And then for each of you, what was your, your real opening into recovery? What was the start? 
Well, you know, for me, um, and one of the things I just want to touch on quickly about this codependency thing, because the other thing that goes along with it, my mom was also one of the people around me, and there's always this idea that somebody's holding out a hope that tomorrow it will be different. And the alcoholic addict generally is also holding out a hope that somehow or another it's going to be different. Today I'm not going to drink or today I'm not going to use. Today I'm, you know, I'm just going to get through without doing this. And, and, and so there's that proverbial um, hope there that can also keep us hooked. And for me, I was blessed with having somebody who was in recovery that was also professionally connected to me that began talking to me about his life. And he never once told me that I had a drinking problem. He never said anything. He just told me about his life. And it came to a point where there was a weekend. I had gone out on the Thursday night, didn't get home again like I said I was going to. By this time, my husband and I were separated. I was living with my mom, and she was basically taking care of my child. And um, I got home and my mom had left me a note saying that my daughter had gone to bed crying because I had told her, I get weepy, I had told her I was going to come home and give her a bath. And when I get out there and I start drinking, I sometimes forget that I'm a mom. Mm, and like your wife, yeah. So you know, forget, what yeah. Got, was it take action and what was the first step for you? So the first step for me was getting to that place of that kind of, pain where I just looked in the mirror and I saw a sallow face. I saw bloodshot eyes one more time that I had let down people that I loved. Um, my employer, I was at a different employer at this time. She was confronting me about my behavior and she said something that was very crucial to me. She said, when you drink, you change. And someone else said the same thing to me who they didn't know each other, but they knew me. And that person said the exact same words two days later that weekend said, when you drink, you change. And it was like this explosion occurred inside of me. It was that moment of clarity that, that Bill W. writes about. It was a moment of clarity where I literally, like a movie. Now, those who don't life. know, Bill W. is a founder of AA. Keep going. You had that you. light come on. And that light came on, and I'm in my car. The beer bottles are, I mean, I was drinking anything. The beer bottles, empty beer bottles, are rolling around in the back of the car. Um, and this light came on, and it was like this movie going on in my mind. And I could see all the people over the years who kept trying to talk to me about my drinking. And it was like I would see their face, and they would go, drinking, drinking, when you drink, drinking, drinking. I mean, like, you know, uh, 12, 13 people who were close to me just over the years. And I started crying. I started crying. And I knew I needed help, and I called this person that I knew through business at 12.30 in the morning because he had given me his phone number. I called him, and I said, will you take, come pick me up and take me to lunch the next day because this was a Sunday. I said, will you come pick me up and take me to lunch? And you know he never asked why. He just said, I'll be there. And he came and picked me up, and I sat across the table, and I looked at him, and I said, I think I'm an alcoholic, and I need help. And he told me, that I had just done the, the hardest part, which was to admit that I had a problem. And that from that moment on, from that moment on, everything would be easy by comparison. Hmm. That is such a powerful story because, you know, it's been my experience having worked with so many people suffering from addiction, a variety of settings from group homes to uh, students and private uh, clients that 
it is the most difficult thing to admit there's a problem. It mm-hmm. is the most difficult thing. And people can talk to you till they're blue in the face, but then suddenly there's something that tips you over, that just tips I, you over. I did not want to be labeled an addict for the rest of my life. And that was, that was difficult. Um, I did not want to be um, called an alcoholic. I actually found more shame in being called an alcoholic than an addict um, because this addict's brain thought being an addict was kind of cool. But um, when it came down to the, the disease, I did not want to be called an addict the rest of my life. But when working the first step, we um, admitted that we were powerless over oh. our addiction or alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. And doing some step work and, and, and doing that and working that uh, with a sponsor, I realized that, you know, it's just like I'm HIV positive. I have HIV. That's as right now there is no known cure that we know of. So for now, I just accept that I have HIV and I take my medications and I have a choice every day. I have a prescription from the doctor. I have a choice every day. Do I take my medications or do I not? It's a choice. And that's so the for same you, the thing that you're saying that is so crucial, because I really want to just take a moment and explore the resistance that's there to accepting a, quote, label or accepting I really do have this issue. Even though loved ones, family members, friends, people are, are saying, please, for God's sake, you have a problem, get help. Look what happens. Look how you change. Look how it's hurting you in business or, or hurting you at home. It is so difficult. This, this turning point is so difficult for people to arrive at, and I want to just say, and I know in, a, in, a, in just a few minutes we're going to turn the page and you're going to talk about how people can get clean, sober, all mm-hmm. of, and stay that way. But for some people, I want to say that moment that you came to, Skip, that you came to, Karen, that moment of truth, of self-awareness, it never comes and sometimes it's important for those family members and friends who are listening, maybe even coworkers. One option we have beyond hitting bottom is, of course, the modern option of intervention. And if you're in a position to create a true intervention, it can't be you sitting down with somebody saying, you know, I think you have a problem. That's not an intervention. It has to be carefully planned with a highly qualified professional in the room and having put together so many interventions, they're not easy. They are time-consuming. They can even be expensive to prepare for, but I have seen tremendous success. So it is another option because often those who are suffering from drugs and alcohol or other addictions who don't have that moment of truth or don't have the intervention end up creating so much hell for themselves and others, or losing their lives. So it's, it's an option, and I, I need to say that I have a young family member who lost his life to addiction, so this is very close to my heart, and he didn't get 
the intervention he needed. Oh, you know, Brenda, I can identify um, with you there because uh, my brother, it'll be two years on the 1st of August that my brother died, and, um, you know, his his death certificate gives a cause of death, but his test was um, because he just never was able to get it, and he died because of addiction. He died because of alcoholism, and, and um, so I, I I really feel your heart there. And, you know, uh, so Friend of my, um, my, former part, my former partner I was telling you about um, just uh, passed uh, seven weeks ago. Oh, yeah. And he, uh, he passed from um, cirrhosis. And, mm, uh, I'm so sorry. That is a raw, it, open wound. Yeah. Seven weeks is no time at all, so you're just at the yeah. beginning of the grieving. And... This is the friend that helped you to get clean and sober and saw you through such difficulties. So bless your heart. We'll just hold you with love and light. And I don't know if you feel at this moment you could actually share with us. I know that you write music and you wrote a beautiful song called How Holy Am I? Mm -hmm. Can we listen Mm -hmm. to a little bit of that or can you hum a few bars for us? Um. Do you have it? I think we have it, Cliff. Don't we have it? And everybody, by the way, you can join the conversation. We'll listen to it. about what it means to now be on the road of recovery. You both had that moment. You came to your knees. You came to your senses. You awakened something in you said, come here. There's help available or somebody got you there. Now, tell us about this 12-step further program that you started and what that really means. Karen, do you want to start off? (laughs) Yeah, but I was just taking a breath. You know, 12 Steps Further is um, something that has emerged from the relationship that's grown between Skip and I uh, in recovery. And, you know, uh, Skip, as you already have heard, is an incredibly talented uh, composer and singer. And 
I um, reached out to him when he sent me one of his meditations, and I said, you know, I have this 12-step work, this retreat that I had done several years ago, and I want to really refresh that, and would you be interested in collaborating um, on how we can bring that out into the world and give it some new form and, and shape? And that, be- that began this collaboration um, that we've been on a journey with each other since then and bringing some wonderful perspectives because as you hear from our stories, we're coming from two very different places. We're bringing, able to bring um, a greater perspective into the work that we're doing and into our recovery, and we're in very different places in our recovery. I mean, I just had my 26th anniversary um, actually in March, and um, Skip just had his 8th anniversary this now, past I'll weekend. Be, I'll be 8 this weekend. This weekend, okay, sorry, but yeah, Easter. Easter. Yeah, right. You know, um, and so really what came, has gotten born out of it is that both of us are deeply uh, committed to our 12-step programs and uh, taking now the wisdom of what we receive in 12-step and building upon that by integrating the awarenesses and integrating the learning from people who are not necessarily recovery people, but people who are doing good work in the world in terms of looking at deeper practices around forgiveness, looking at deeper practices as where we are in, um, in our own level of consciousness and our own awareness of how we see the world. So hold on a second. Let me understand. What happened <laughs> is that you started on your own journey of recovery that began to take off, and from that you started making these other discoveries. So just, like, how long did it take you to feel like your recovery was solid, each of you, and what, what did you do to make it solid? Well, hmm. um, <laughs> boy, I'll tell you. I, I uh, Well, for me, first off, I'm one of these people who's been very blessed that from the time I crossed the threshold of 12-step, I've not had the leave. Um, I've stayed clean and sober the entire time from the time I was introduced to 12-step. And what happened is I met people who understood that I needed to drive to work in the morning with, with vodka and Kool-Aid in a coffee mug so that it would look like I was drinking coffee. Um, and they understood that and they held my hand and they introduced me to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and they introduced me to the 12 steps and with sponsorship, which Skip already mentioned, and I'm going to uh, pause for a moment and let Skip share a bit also, but through sponsorship began taking me through the steps. And that was where the foundation for me really got laid. Well, I'm, I'm going to back up. For those who are new to the whole idea of 12-step programs, a sponsor is a person who has already worked those 12 steps that are the backbone of yes. the 12-step program. The first step is the one that both Skip and Karen spoke of earlier, which is admitting that I'm powerless, that I've yes. tried my best not to drink or drug or whatever it is, and darn it, I just keep on doing it, and something in me, you know, is there, just beyond my control. There is, uh, you, there is something about wanting, admitting that powerlessness, because I think I should be all powerful. You know, I should be able to get control over this. But what I really realize in working the steps is that 
I'm powerless over anything outside of myself that I give my power to. I give my power to drugs. I give my power to that man or woman that I say that I'm in love with. I give them my power. I give my power to those uh, Oreos at 3 a.m. that I'm going <laughs> searching for, you know, I'm when I'm going yes, searching for them at the grocery store. You know, I, I give my power away to that. And once I give my power away, it's like little, it's my little self, my ego self. Once I give my power away to that, I'm gone. And I, that's where the steps come in. The second step is, you know, um, Knowing that there is a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Right. You know, so the second step is, is actually the one that begins the spiritual part of the journey of saying there's something mm-hmm. greater than myself and it's going to help me. And we were talking last week on the show about people who have that aversion to things that are spiritual because either they were um, hurt by religion or they don't get it on some level there's another program if that's an issue for you it's called smart the spiritual part isn't there and i have to say the research shows that the spiritual part is the secret ingredient for many people who gets clean and sober and stay clean and sober but if it doesn't work for you do what works the important thing is you get your life back if you're not drinking and drugging or somehow abusing your beautiful, precious self. Mm. So just want to throw out the, another option there. The great, thing about the, the great thing about the anonymous programs is that spiritual is such a broad mm-hmm. perspective and mm-hmm. that anonymous, and that's one thing that Karen and I are bringing into 12 Steps further, is that in the rooms for a particular reason and for a good reason, you know, in the rooms means going to a 12-step meeting, you guys. Yes. I'm the translator yes. here. <laughs> yes, thank you. God is anonymous. We keep, our, we keep God anonymous. No matter what our religion of origin or our current spiritual practices, we keep that anonymous as well. We don't go in the rooms and preach. We go into the rooms and we focus on our common our common, that's our first tradition, is um, staying focused on our common welfare. And, mm-hmm. and so in 12 Steps Further, one of the things Karen and I are doing is we get to bring God out of the closet a little bit. We get to, <laughs> explore, we get to explore some of these things. Um, but when I first got in the rooms, I did not like the word God um, it was that desperation, though, that I thought, okay, I'm going to try these 12 steps. And when I had that open mind, that's the second gift I got, is the gift of the open mind. I looked at the third step, which is we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And that part is even uh-huh. underlined. <laughs> just going to jump in on that one. <laughs> and... As we understood Oh, pause him. one second, you guys. Pause for one second, because I totally forgot to let everybody know that they can send us a question on Facebook or tweet us at Dr. Brenda Wade or Facebook <laughs> Brenda Wade or call, because I know if you have a question or comment, 
Skip and Karen would love to hear from you. Call us at 347-989-0776. And Cliff, who is our moderator, will relay that question or that comment or put you in the conversation. All right, go right ahead. We're coming in the home stretch, you guys. So I really would like you, if you don't mind, to help people who may know someone who is suffering from addictive illness. What's the most important thing they can do that would be helpful? That's someone who knows. Yeah, someone who knows someone who's suffering. Mm-hmm. That's really a tough one because we can we cannot recover for anyone. Even when we're doing an intervention, we can show someone how their life is unmanageable. But until someone accepts that their life is unmanageable, the intervention's not going to work. Well, there's Even one if- other piece to that. Now, let me say this as somebody who does interventions. Uh, I hate to say it like this, but we can put the screws on. Some of the most successful (laughs) interventions I've participated in are those that have consequences. Right. Right. I have the the keys to the car, your home, and your bank account, none of which will be available to you unless you accept this bed that is awaiting you at this particular recovery center. And should you choose to go, you will be able to take advantage of these keys and these other things when you come out or not. You know, there are ways. You know, I I work with a very courageous woman who picked up her five children and said the children and I will be living elsewhere until you are willing and there's a bed waiting for you. So there are all kinds of ways that an intervention can provide uh, support, let's put it that way. Even if a person isn't ready to see it, it's better than having somebody, you know, end up dead or in some other horrible situation or hurting someone else. So that that's an option. So I just have to throw that in. No, no I'm absolutely. Sorry, and actually, Brenda, part of what you just brought up was the direction I was also going to go with it, too, is that I think one of the most powerful things that someone can do is they can set boundaries for themselves and they can no longer participate or stop what we call co-signing, you know, the addict or alcoholics, the addict's behavior. So that's certainly something that somebody can do when they stand back and say, I love you and I'm not going to participate in this anymore, exactly what you're talking about. I'm not going to let you take money out of our bank account so that you can go get loaded when you need to pay our rent. I'm not going to let you, you know, drive the car and, you know, those kinds of things. And that's a, what another way, as long as well as just letting people know that you know we love you, and there's help available. You know, um, call these numbers. There's help available, and there are people. And, and there. even if the person doesn't accept the help, I would like to say, on behalf of all co's, myself having become a recovered co, you get your self-esteem and your self-respect back because you're not letting yourself, you know, participate in somebody's illness. So please, Mm -hmm. Coase, boundaries are going to be your favorite word. Lots of work. So tell us about 12 steps further, you guys. If somebody out there wants to use your program or become a part of it, what's the first thing that they would learn? What would be the most important thing? 
the most important thing that I think someone can receive by participating with us in the retreat we have coming up in October um, through the Awaken Whole Life Center, which is happening at Unity Village, uh, Unity, Missouri, Unity Village, Missouri, is that your recovery is not only about what's going on in your life at the physical level, but it's also about what's going on in your life spiritually. Mm. And you connect into that at an even deeper level than where you are right now, it will, it will transform and take you to the next level, the next layer of, um, of sobriety, of emotional sobriety. You know, Bill Wilson wrote uh, actually several years into his recovery that it is actually the emotional and spiritual sobriety that is the key to living a, a fully satisfying and engaging life. And that's really the work that we're out to do is to be with people to take that, uh, to take it 12 steps further, to take it even further. Um, and that's what we really bring to the mix, as Skip was saying. You know, God, we're not advocating any particular spiritual tradition. People come from all sorts of different spiritual traditions. What we're advocating is a place and a space to be able to really explore how that looks in our lives and in our relationships. We are, we are um, dedicated to, um, well, first, I, we are dedicated for, uh, to helping people reach 12 steps further who are fully, deeply rooted into their recovery and who have a strong working knowledge of the 12 steps. You know, people who are new into recovery, um, our program, even though our radio program and so forth, they can get things out of it, but our retreats and a lot of our work uh, is for the people who have worked the steps through uh, or have been working with a sponsor for a while. And it's sometimes it revives them. Sometimes, you know, we get stale in our recovery. It can help them with that. Um, we like to focus on our retreat in, uh, in October is focusing a little more on, on meditation and coming forth, you know, creating that uh, conscious contact uh, with our higher power. And, and, yeah, well, this is really about deepening the spiritual side of recovery. So if you've already gone the, down the road of recovering, you've already worked the 12 steps, this is going to be golden. Now, what about those people who aren't yet ready for 12 steps further? What is your best advice to them? Maybe somebody who's on the fence about getting into recovery or, or struggling with how do I stay clean and sober? Work the steps. Get a sponsor. Yep. Go to meetings. Go to meetings. <laughs> go to meetings for 90 days. If you can't do 90 meetings in 90 days, go to one meeting a day for 90 days. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So one day at a time, one meeting at a time, Getting somebody there. Now, the thing about a sponsor that is so cool is that this is a person who's been on the same journey and has mm -hmm. usually had some recovery and knows it's kind of like you've got this new journey ahead of you and somebody knows the way and they're going to hold up the light and go, watch out for that rock over there. You know, whoa, whoa, there's a little 
little crank here, don't step there. So this is so important, and I want everyone to know that Skip, you, and Karen have shared your stories so openly, so honestly with us, and it is so valuable for people to understand more about the disease of addiction, and I believe it is an illness, but it's also an illness that we can heal from, whether you are a co who's been sucked into or feel it's your job. I felt it was absolutely my job to rescue people who were in their addictive process. I thought that was what a good person was supposed to do. I now know a good person is supposed to keep her own boundaries and go, there are those great meetings over there, and I strongly recommend them. Or you know what? I'll help you put together an intervention and keep my ambulance in my own garage. So I want everyone to know you can reach... Karen Epps and Skip Sams and participate in the 12 Steps Further Retreat at Unity Village or find out more about deepening your spiritual practice and opening more of that great vista of your inner life by going to www.12stepsfurther.com and a huge Heartfelt thank you, everyone. Just send it out right now with all your heart to Skip Sams and Karen Epps. And we're celebrating with you your 26 years of recovery, Karen. And on Easter Day, Skip, your eight-year anniversary. That is huge. And thank you for your beautiful gift of music to us earlier. All right, everyone, so important to know. If Karen and Skip can do it, you can do it. And no one has to continue to suffer from addictive illness. All right, take a deep breath. We breathe in deep gratefulness for all the love in our lives. And it is a gift of love from you, Karen, and from you, Skip. So thanks again. All right, everyone, stay with us on the journey next week. We'll be with you again for more good love with more absolutely powerful and exciting guests. And if you would like to join me May 24th and 25th for a two-day live intensive here in San Francisco in our Good Love Academy, where I will be helping you to master the steps of good love in your life and to uncover more of your worthiness to get that you really are worthy, deserving, and lovable, hit me back on Facebook, Dr. Brenda Wade. Tweet me, tweet at me, Dr. Brenda Wade, or send us an email at love at docwade.com. All right, everyone. Thank you, Cliff. Thank you to our wonderful producer, the brilliant Mr. Legrand Green. And we say good night, everyone, and blessings. Mm-hmm.